and welcome to Spacegate's Guide to Science Fiction. I'm your host, Spacegate with a capital K, and I'm here to take you on a fantastical journey through science fiction. Today I will get into the nitty-gritty of the first ever recorded space battle. So arm photon torpedoes and fire at will. If like me, you are a student of Western literature. At some point in your studies, the name Lucian of Samosata probably crossed your path. Perhaps you remember him for his dialogues of the courtesans, or his dialogues of the dead, because why wouldn't you? Such titles are far more catching than a true story. But the dialogues, although extremely entertaining and definitely worth your time, are not science fiction. The true story, however, is. Let me first give you a brief biographical note on our author. Lucian of Samosata was born sometime between 120 and 125 AD and died sometime after 180 AD. He was born in Samosata, a city that was located near the river Euphrates. We know next to nothing about his family, but considering that he was able to travel to Greece at a young age where he studied not only the language but popular philosophies of his time, we can assume that he was not born into slavery. His wit quickly became apparent and he made a name for himself by ridiculing people and ideologies in his works. You could think of him as the Roman equivalent of John Oliver or Stephen Colbert. If Lucian were alive today, he would certainly be at home in the late-night talk shows. The works that survive to this day are surprisingly plentiful, thankfully, and unsurprisingly written in Greek. For while he lived in Roman times, Greek was still a highly respected language. At this point, I need to clarify something about the way I pronounce the name in English. Traditionally, because his name in English is written with a C, it would have been more appropriate to pronounce the name as Lucian and not Lucian, as I'm doing. But his name is not a Latinized version of a Greek name like Lucifer, so I am pronouncing the name as a Greek person pronounces it. I hope that it doesn't bother you, but calling him Lucian sounds weird to me. Pet peeves, people. Pet peeves. Back to the true story, though. If you have not read it yet, I strongly urge you to do so. Regardless of whether you prefer not to be spoiled by the podcast or just need a good laugh, it is a brilliant piece of literature, and it is not extremely long. You could easily read it in a day and still have time to watch a movie afterwards. Obviously, it is a blatant satire. Lucian makes fun of all the contemporary adventure novels that were all the rage in his days. Unfortunately for us, very few complete examples of such novels survive, so we are not entirely clear on the insanity depicted in them. But if you need an example of what he is ridiculing, you need not look any further than, yes, the Odyssey and, yes, the Argonautica. Both texts are adventures that incorporate elements of the fantastical freely and with abandon. That is part of their charm. Lucian knows this. That is not his issue with them. 
His issue seems to be with his contemporary readers who, apparently, had a hard time distinguishing fact from fiction. If this reminds you of a similar state of mind in our times, people disregarding hard science and putting stock in wild, unproven conspiracy theories, you're not far off. You see, we have not evolved as much as we'd like to think as a species. A well-dressed lie is far more palatable than a hard-hitting truth. What Lukian tried then with his true story was to prove the absurd belief in such novels while at the same time satirizing some of the popular ideologies of his age. The true story is above all an adventure novel. It follows in the great tradition of Homer and Apollonius of Rhodes and builds upon it, creating its own acolytes. Lucian was extremely popular, even if controversial, in Europe as early as the Middle Ages, and his influence can be traced well into the 19th century. Dante Alighieri, Ludovico Ariosto, Cyrano de Bergerac, Jonathan Swift, Voltaire, Edgar Allan Poe are just a few prominent authors who took inspiration from Lucian and expanded upon his original in one way or another. Let us then explore that part of the true story that is important to science fiction, the trip to the moon and the interplanetary war that ensues. Very early on in the story, our hero and his unnamed companions are whisked off from the sea and into the sky. Literally whisked off. There is no science involved in this, just bad weather. The 1905 translation by H.W. Fowler and F.G. Fowler reads like this, quote, But about midday, when we were out of sight of the island, a waterspout suddenly came upon us, which swept the ship round and up to a height of some 350 miles above the earth. She did not fall back into the sea, but was suspended aloft, and at the same time carried along by a wind which struck and filled the sails. End quote. After a week of this miraculous voyage, they found quote, an island with air for sea, glistening, spherical, and bathed in light. End quote. This is the moon, and it is inhabited. Here Lucian gives a sweet nod to ancient Greek mythology, of which he certainly was a connoisseur, because the king of the moon is Endymion, a mortal. His story outside of Lucian's fable is one of the less dramatic, but still somewhat tragic, stories of mythology. Selene, the goddess of the moon and another incarnation of Artemis, goddess of the hunt, was a sworn virgin. However, even she wasn't immune to love. One day, she indeed fell in love with a mortal shepherd, Endymion, who also adored her as Selene. Each night, when he slept in a cave, Selene, in the form of the moon, would gaze upon him as she travelled the night sky. Eventually, she asked Zeus to grant him eternal youth and cast him in an eternal sleep, so that she might admire him in perpetuity. The myth is certainly problematic, especially if we take into account the version that says that Selene had intercourse with Endymion as he slept and even had children like this by him, but Endymion's mythological existence is not important here. 
Before I get back to Lucian's version, however, let me give a very quick shout-out to Italian composer Francesco Cavalli, who, in his extremely entertaining opera La Calisto, includes the story of Endymion and Diana in a very effective way. Do check it out if you have the inclination, it is absolutely worth your while. Anyway, back to the true story. Endymion, King of the Moon, is preparing to go to battle against Phaethon, King of the Sun. Again, Phaethon has a mythological origin connecting him to the Sun, but his story is positively tragic in every way, so we'll leave it out. The two monarchs are fighting over an uninhabited star, specifically the Morning Star, that Endymion wants to populate with his people. The war, then, that breaks out between the Moon people and the Sun people is a matter of disputed territory. This, by itself, is a very realistic cause for war. Now, here come the aliens. Endymion's side has the following species. Horse vultures, which are, quote, men mounted on huge vultures, which they ride like horses. The great birds have ordinarily three heads, end quote. Salad wings, which are, quote, also enormous birds fledged with various herbs and with quill feathers resembling lettuce leaves, end quote. Millet throwers and garlic men, flea archers and wind courses. Phaethon's side employed the following. Horse ants, which are, quote, great winged animals resembling our ants except in size, end quote. Sky gnats, sky pirouetteers, who, quote, slung monstrous radishes at long range, a wound from which was almost immediately fatal, turning to gangrene at once, end quote. Stalk fungi, whose, quote, shields are mushrooms and their spears asparagus stalks, end quote. Dog acorns, quote, dog-faced men fighting on winged acorns, end quote. And, lastly, the cloud centaurs, who decided the battle in favour of Phaethon. The winners, then, proceeded to erect a wall between the sun and the moon. Quote, the consequence was total eclipse of the moon, which experienced a continuous night. End quote. Negotiations followed and eventually both sides came to terms and the wall was torn down. Interestingly, and even though most terms were clearly favouring the winners, there was one term that reads like this in A. M. Harmon's translation. Quote, that the colony on the morning star be planted in common, and that anyone else who so desires may take part in it." End quote. The thing that caused the war, then, became a solution to a peaceful coexistence between the Sunites and the Moonites. Unknowingly, Lucian here sets the precedence not only for the first interplanetary war, but also for the first interplanetary alliance. Now, if you paid close attention this far, you'll have noticed that I changed translations. I started with the Fowler's 1905 translation and moved on to Harmon's Loeb Classical Library Edition. There is, of course, a reason behind this deliberate choice. The 1905 translation is, in my opinion, freer, which is not always a better thing, but in this case I do prefer it slightly. However, it being an early 20th century piece, it censors the original where it sees fit. And there is a moment in Lucian 
that indeed would have been shocking, to put it mildly, for an audience of that time. The Loeb Classical Library edition, however, as it is a highly respectable academic edition, maintains the passage and we need to examine it more closely. The passage in question reads like this. Quote, Endymion wanted me to stay with him and join the colony, promising to give me his own son in marriage. There are no women in their country. They are not born of women, but of men. They marry men and do not even know the word woman at all. Up to the age of 25, each is a wife, and thereafter a husband. They carry their children in the calf of the leg instead of the belly. When conception takes place, the calf begins to swell. In course of time, they cut it open and deliver the child dead, and then they bring it to life by putting it in the wind with its mouth open. It seems to me that the term belly of the leg came to us Greeks from there, since the leg performs the function of a belly with them. But I will tell you something else, still more wonderful. They have a kind of men whom they call the Arboreals, who are brought into the world as follows. Excepting a man's right genital gland, they plant it in the ground. From it grows a very large tree of flesh, resembling the emblem of Priapus. It has branches and leaves, and its fruit is acorns, a cubit thick. When these ripen, they harvest them and shell out the men. Another thing, they have artificial parts that are sometimes of ivory and sometimes, with the poor, of wood, and make use of them in their intercourse." End quote. If the more knowledgeable regarding science fiction classics among you, my listeners, are reminded of Ursula K. Le Guin's novel The Left Hand of Darkness, you are indeed correct. Lucian's true story has this throwaway moment that many centuries later would become the central subject of a seminal work of science fiction. The fact that he dwells very little upon this issue makes it even more remarkable. And you can also understand now why a 1905 translation sees fit to skip this part almost in its entirety. Why is this description important, however? Well, for starters, this is, in truth, the first real description of the aliens that the hero encounters. All the creatures described in the war scenes are not sentient, with the exception of the cloud centaurs. The creatures, it could even be argued, are more figments of fantasy rather than hardcore science fiction. They are hybrids, much like a number of famous mythological beasts. Their contemporaries in today's pop culture can be traced in any fantasy novel or show that makes use of such creatures. Think polar bear dogs and flying bison from Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra fame. But for a brief moment, the author gives us an actual glimpse of an actual alien. And those aliens are male, procreate in same-sex unions, and carry their offspring in their bodies. The Arboreals, too, are another insanely interesting creation. Again, everything about them is just another metaphor for the male genitals. Lucian has effectively envisaged a society where men are a single dominant species and have even the ability to procreate without the need of women. Le Guin, may I remind you, still needs the female body in her novel, but conditionally. Lucian does not. 
and this is a trend that permeates the true story. Women in this novel are almost non-existent, and those that eventually appear are either a bad example for mythology or write out evil. Now, at the time that Lucian writes his story, Christianity is still a niche religion, and we do not have enough evidence to know how well acquainted with its doctrines Lucian was, if at all. But Roman culture, which essentially adopted and assimilated a large part of Greek culture as it conquered the Greek territories, still has a fairly open relationship with male homosexuality. Which means that for Lucian's contemporaries, the notion of an all-male society is not problematic. They would have wondered at their ability to procreate without women, but the homosexuality thing would not have disturbed them. Which goes to show that in some respects, our ancestors were definitively more open-minded than we are. Alright then, let's sum up. Lucian writes a novel in response to his contemporaries' love of far-fetched adventure stories, and to top them all off, he sends his heroes to the moon, where they participate in an interplanetary war, meet aliens who are of a single gender, and generally have a good time among the stars. There is, of course, very little hard science involved in all of this. The ship is not a spaceship, and there are no ray guns or photon torpedoes being used, but rather vegetables. Yet, here we are, some 2000 plus years later, discovering the origins of our favourite genre. It makes you wonder, was Lucian the only one back then who dreamed of space travel? Before I leave you, here's what you can expect from our next episode. What happens when a giant from Sirius and a slightly smaller giant from Saturn pay a visit to Earth? Curious? Well, tune into the next episode to find out more. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, rate, review and recommend it to your friends. If you really enjoyed this podcast, you can buy me a cup of virtual coffee. How? Well, you'll find out in the link from the show notes. You can find me on Twitter at SpaceKate. Thank you for listening, and until next time.